It's an old movie. Uh, some of you have seen it. Uh, I tell you what, in my estimation, it's a classic. Uh, Bob, uh, you know, is an obsessive, compulsive, neurotic who drives his psychotherapist crazy. So here's my question today. Do you have a Bob in your life? No hands, please. Just make eye contact with me. Okay, I see a few of you making eye contact. All right, very good. Now, second question. Could it be possible that you are a Bob in someone else's life? That is possible, is it not? Well, we are studying King David this fall, and uh, today we discover this. David had a Bob in his life. His name was Saul. And Saul made life so very, very difficult uh, for David. His profile is described over at least half of the book of 1 Samuel. And the picture that emerges of Saul is that of a man who is tormented, has extreme mood swings, who ultimately takes his own life. Saul made life, as I said, very difficult for David, and frankly, Saul represents people who make life difficult for us. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about Saul, about people who we can't live with, but we're also going to look at his son, Jonathan, who represents a person we can't live without. And so uh, we begin uh, with Saul, and uh, what is the profile that is given to us in Scripture uh, of this man? Uh, there are too many verses for us to read, and so I'm going to give you the references. You can write them down, and you might look at them uh, later for further study. Here's what we see uh, of Saul. In chapter 9, in verses 1 and 2, we see something of his physical stature. He is impressive. He is a tall, he's a big man, and that helps when you're going to be the king. In chapter 12, we learn that he does become king. He is affirmed by the people, and he reigns as king for 42 years. It doesn't take him very long to get in trouble. In chapter 13, he is impatient. That impatience, that impetuous, impulsive nature of his is seen regularly throughout his reign as king. And his insecurity combined with his impatience is to a fault, and he gets in trouble before the Lord because of this. In chapter 15, uh, he is rebuked for his uh, disobedience to a very specific mission that God gave to him. And when he is confronted about his disobedience, he rationalizes it all to explain his misdeeds. Also in chapter 15, even though he is the king and he is the commander of the army of Israel, he is intimidated by those troops and causes him to act out and do some terrible things. But then we come to chapter 16 and verse 14. And this is one we're going to linger on just for a moment. We read it a couple of weeks ago when we began our study in David. It says this, Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. That's a difficult uh, passage of Scripture, and yet it doesn't take us very long to dissect it and explain it. Here's what we know. Ultimately, Saul became a man who was demonically oppressed. In order to understand that, however, let's talk about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament. He was active in coming upon people, particularly prophets, 
who would declare a word from the Lord to the nation of Israel. It was also active in coming upon people to complete a mission that God wanted to be fulfilled. And so this anointing of the Holy Spirit was primarily for service for God in the Old Testament. However, the Spirit's ongoing and abiding presence with the godly people was not guaranteed in the Old Testament. It was possible that a leader uh, could, could uh, be very selfish, be, uh, be disobedient, and the Spirit of God would depart. Hence, David's prayer in Psalm 51 after his sin with Bathsheba when he said, O oh Lord, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David's great fear was that the Spirit of God would leave him and he would live the rest of his life without having the presence and the power of the Spirit of God in his life. That was a fearful thought for David, and he prayed earnestly, God, do not let that Spirit depart from me. Now Saul, when he became king, he was anointed with the Spirit. It permitted him to prophesy as well. But Saul's behavior was such that in his disobedience, he began to push the Spirit of God to the recesses of his life. So that over the course of time, his continued disobedience actually pushed the Spirit of God so far away that his heart and his life became almost like a vacuum. And in the absence of the Spirit of God that had one time influenced him, this, there was this vacuum that would now begin to be filled with evil spirits. And so when it says here that the Spirit of God left Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him, we're not saying that the Spirit of God actually sent that, that evil spirit, but that by this Holy Spirit's withdrawal, it became almost automatic, natural for the evil spirits to take up those places where the Spirit of God had one time been in control of his life. So, here's how one Bible historian describes Saul. Always of a volatile temperament, capable of frenzies of excitement, it appears that as pressure was put upon him, he became increasingly disturbed in mind, swinging like a pendulum between moments of lucidity and black moods in which incapable of intelligent action. He indulged in behavior calculated to alienate even those closest to him. Before the end, Saul was probably no longer quite sane. So this is his profile. What about his relationship with David? Well, David knew him, first of all, as his king, as his employer, and also as his father-in-law. So there was a, a complexity to their relationship. And that is, relationship is splattered over 13 chapters in 1 Samuel. In chapter 18, we know that, that Saul became insanely jealous of the success and the popularity David had as a soldier based upon the killing of Goliath. Also, in chapter 18 and 19, we see that Saul engineered several, um, uh, his, actually tried to manipulate David through uh, marrying his daughters. Uh, he devised at least 10 different plots 
to kill David. His pattern of behavior became very, very regular. He would become angry, and he would pursue David. David would run. Saul uh, would come to his senses. He and David would make peace. Saul would return to his home, and, and David would go about his business. And then after a few weeks, Saul forgot about that agreement they had made, and he would pursue David again. That cycle repeated itself for about 15 years. Truly, Saul was a man that was very difficult for David to live with. Does that sound like a person that is in your life? A person who's making life difficult because of this repeating cycle of dysfunction. So how do we love a difficult person? Now, in David's response to Saul, there are three significant actions that David took that I believe can be helpful to us if we have a Saul in our lives. The first action that David took is in chapter 19 and verse 18. It says that David ran from Saul, he made his escape, and he went to Samuel at Ramah and told Samuel all that Saul had done to him. What does David do? He gets counsel. He's going to get support, but right now he's getting counsel from Samuel. You see, Samuel had a long history of dealing with Saul, and David goes to him and says, help me understand this fellow and how I should interact with him. You see, counsel is incredibly important when we're dealing with people like Saul. Counsel gives perspective. It gives us objectivity. Uh, good, godly counsel is wise, and it is also going to talk about our responsibilities within that relationship. So he goes to Samuel and gets counsel. But notice in chapter 20 and verse 1, now he goes to Jonathan and gets support from Jonathan. He goes to a very trusted friend. I have learned this, that counsel and support is not necessarily the same. They can overlap, but they are different. He said counsel gives to us a sense of, uh, of uh, understanding and insight, perspective, probably gives us some advice as to how we should handle this, but support is different. Support talks about such things just as encouragement, empathy, listening, uh, being available, and being prayerful. And so, a lot of similarities, but there are some differences. And if you and I don't understand the difference between counsel and support, it can bite us. Just this summer, I learned of a pastor who um, I, I deeply respect. I've listened to so many of his messages and read a number of his books. But this summer, he had to resign from his position at a very, very large and significant church because of an error in judgment. He failed to distinguish between counsel and support. You see, an incident happened at the church of which he was senior pastor, and it required his counsel as to know how to respond to the incident. But it also happened that the incident involved his own son. And so he is now 
wanting to support his son as a father, any father would, but he's also the senior pastor of this church where he has to give counsel. And unfortunately, there's a conflict of interest. And he chose to be a supportive father. And as a result of that, his judgment was flawed. And the actions that he took were disastrous because he failed to understand that counsel and support are different. And ultimately, the judgment that he gave and the decisions he made as a father undermined the role that he had as pastor. And ultimately, he had to resign because of the flawed judgment that he gave because he did not distinguish between counsel and support. David went to Samuel for counsel, but he went to Jonathan for support. We need both. We need both if we're dealing with a person such as Saul. Here's a second action that he takes. It's uh, in chapter 24 and verse 22. It was after uh, a, an, a, uh, uh, an agreement that Saul and, and David made. And so uh, David gave his oath to Saul in verse 22. Saul returns to his home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. That's significant. Saul goes home, but David doesn't return to his home. Why doesn't he? Well, before we answer that, in chapter 26 and verse 25, once again, uh, Saul comes to his senses. He creates another oath with David. And so we realize Saul said in verse 25, May you be blessed, my son David. You will do great things and you will surely triumph. So David goes on his way and Saul returns to his home. Once again, there's an agreement. Saul goes home, but David doesn't go back to his home. What's happening? The answer is given in verse 1 of chapter 27. David thought to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. You see, even though there had been an oath that had been made and Saul had given his words, David couldn't trust Saul's promises. He said, I just know that there's something about this guy that I cannot depend upon. And so what does David do? He creates a physical boundary of protection. He knows that he cannot trust Saul, and so he builds a physical boundary to protect himself. I think there's a significant bit of wisdom for us in this uh, uh, as we deal with a difficult person. We have to build appropriate boundaries and you see, relationship boundaries are good, and they actually protect people, and they will serve the, the relationship. Um, when a relationship has boundaries, it permits both parties in that relationship to know what is appropriate. Where can we go, and where do we not go? If you have young children, perhaps you have a, a fenced backyard. And there's a reason why you fence the backyard. You want to provide a safe place for your children to play, where they can run and frolic and laugh and throw balls and not be afraid. They can be secure in that. I truly believe that that is also true of relationships. 
and relationships that continually disregard or do not honor boundaries are dangerous. Very, very dangerous. They become abusive and they create deep wounds for people. So we build boundaries. Now the first two are things that we understand today because of so much that has been written in psychology. But the third one, the third action that David takes is truly going to be the most difficult. Let's turn to chapter 24, verses 5 through 7. This occurs just after David has spared Saul's life in the cave. And so in verse 5 it says this, Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Do you see how David remains gentle in heart? and attitude towards Saul. In chapter 26, David said to Saul, Saul, today I have valued your life. Even though Saul did not value David's life, David said, Saul, I value your life. And when David heard that Saul uh, had, had died, David grieved for his death. And it tells me that throughout this fractured, tortured relationship that David had with Saul, he remained gentle in heart and attitude. I want you to know that that takes the work of the Spirit of God in order for you to remain gentle with people who consistently Wound your spirit. Only the Spirit of God can give you a gentleness and a forgiving heart for those. You see, the, the t- tendency is that when you've been wounded enough times, there's a scar that develops, and your skin, your heart becomes hardened to the point that your, your anger, your desire for revenge or, or bitterness is not just towards them, but over the course of time, it just begins to build and it spreads to other areas of your life so that you begin to have a cynical, hard attitude towards all people. And the only way to stop that from becoming a cancer in, in a life is to say, I need to forgive. And I need to remain tender. The only way I can do that is if the supernatural power of the Spirit of God does that in my life. And yet, is that not what makes a Christian a Christian? As those who have been forgiven so much, are we not called also to be forgivers of others? It is so crucial in this day where there is so much rancor And there's so much passion and emotion. Opinions that Christians have about things is so strong. And the question is, are we gracious and loving towards one another? We have to be those kinds of people if we're going to call ourselves Christian. 
because it follows in the pathway of Jesus. So, as difficult as this relationship was for David, a person he couldn't live with, there was also his son Jonathan, who is a person we can't live without. And so, everyone, everyone needs a friend like Jonathan. And if you're a teenager here today, I know that friends are incredibly important to you in this season of your life. And I encourage you to listen very carefully because in this relationship between David and Jonathan, there are some of the qualities that make for a great friendship. Seek to build these into your friendships with your peers. So we're going to go through them rather quickly. Chapter 18 and verse 1. It says that Jonathan became one in spirit with David. There's a kinship of spirit between these two fellows. The context is that David has just completed a conversation with Saul over the killing of Goliath. Evidently, Jonathan was in the context to hear that. And after he heard what David had said, Jonathan's heart was stirred so that he and David became one in spirit. That's where friendships begin, with some common ground, some, some kinship and unity of spirit. In verse 3, we're told that Jonathan made a covenant, a, a commitment with David because he loved him as himself. And that word covenant is repeated numerous times to describe their friendship. I'm reminded as I think about this idea of a commitment to something that I did when I was uh, a boy growing up in, in uh, North Dakota, a small little town, Bowdoin, 250 people in the town at that time. There were 13 in my class, one other boy my age in, this, in the uh, town. And so uh, Brian and I would, would found this to be true in the summer. If we had our bicycles and our pocket knives, we were entertained for the day. That's all we needed, bicycle and a pocket knife. And so one day, we got this idea that we were going to become blood brothers. And so uh, we took our pocket knives out of our pocket. We sterilized them by wiping them on our jeans, you know. Uh, you know, earlier that day, they had been used to dissect frogs, cut up worms, and those kinds of things. And so we sterilized it by wiping it on our jeans. And then we cut our fingers, and then we pressed our fingers together, thinking that we could somehow exchange blood. And in that experience, we became Blood brothers. Maybe some of you guys did that when you were a child as well. In a very real sense, David and Jonathan became blood brothers. There was a covenant, a commitment between them. Well, in verse 4, we see something else, another quality. So Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing, his tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. Do you see the sacrificial nature of that friendship? Now, this perhaps is symbolic of Jonathan understanding that David was going to inherit the throne. And we do know this, that, that Jonathan in this relationship became the primary giver, the, the servant uh, to David. But we understand also that there's a sacrificial nature to friendships. People that mean uh, are important to us, we make sacrifices for them. We continue in chapter 19 and verse 1. It says that, that Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan was very fond of David and he warned him. Boy, that's a great characteristic of a, of a good friend. Someone who will warn you of danger. 
Sometimes, you know, we don't see danger. We're too close to it or we don't want to see it. But a friend, a good friend, will warn us. Two weeks ago, I was having a conversation with a Jonathan friend of mine. And I was telling him about uh, a mentoring, uh, coaching conversation I was going to have later in the day. And and I explained the situation to my Jonathan friend. He was quiet. And then he said, Dean, that's very delicate. It's very dangerous. Choose your words very carefully. Now, I, I had known to some extent that, yes, I needed to be careful. But to hear that from my friend, my Jonathan, who used the word Dean, that's dangerous. Just reminded me, not only of the importance of that, but how good a friend he was to warn me of danger. Now, chapter 19, verse 4. Jonathan spoke well of David and and, and to Saul, his father, and he said to him, Let not the king do wrong to a servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. You see the loyalty that Jonathan has for David? He spoke and defended him even in his own absence, but he, he defended him before his father. How important that is to have a loyal friend. In chapter 20, in verse 9, after David had gone and, and poured out his heart to, to Jonathan, in verse 9, Jonathan responds and said, Never will this happen if I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you. Wouldn't I tell you? There's this honesty and transparency in their relationship. I discovered this. Our English word friend comes from an old English word meaning freedom. Isn't that rich? The association between freedom and friendship. Good friends give you the freedom to speak honestly, transparently, without judgment. If you're wondering if you have a really close friend, the question is this, do you have the freedom to speak candidly to them? It's a good test. And finally, the best one is in chapter 23 and verse 16. We save the best for last. And so, Day after day, in verse 14, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. And yet, in verse 16, Saul's son Jonathan went to David. He found David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. That spiritual encouragement. But before that, it's so interesting that Saul was chasing David but could not find him. But Jonathan, his good friend, could. I think that's significant. You know what? Good friends will find us even when we're hiding because that's what a good friend does. They know us and they can find us. And when they do, they give us that spiritual encouragement in God. Good friends will always be brothers and sisters in the faith because that's such a vital part of our lives and it's going to be a vital part of our friendship. So, let me quickly give you four takeaways from the David-Jonathan relationship. Number one, every one of us needs an intimate friend, but not every friendship can be this intimate. 
I hope you understand that. Everyone needs one, two, three of these in a lifetime, but we cannot expect every friendship to be like this. It's just impossible. Number two is a takeaway. Your marriage should strive for this type of a relationship. She will not be or he will not be your only intimate friend, but if you don't include your spouse in that inner circle, there's work to be done. A marriage psychologist has identified 11 different types of marital intimacy. Did you know that? 11 different types, of which one is sexual or physical intimacy. And when we think of marriage and intimacy, we think of just that one, physical and sexual. And he says, but that's just one of 11. And he goes on to say that the more types of intimacy that we weave into our marriage relationship, the stronger that marriage is going to be. And so our marriages should strive to have this type of intimacy. Here's the third takeaway. Christian community is built upon these qualities. You see, there's this common ground because of the death and resurrection of Christ. And then there is this common spirit that has been given to all of us. And so that becomes the foundation for our, 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 our community. And then all of the other qualities build upon that great foundation. So Christian community is built upon the principles, the qualities that we've just described. And finally, the fourth takeaway is this. This is the best one. This is what God offers us. This is what God offers each one of us. And here's the lengths to which God went to have you to become the friend of God. First of all, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to remove the alienation that separated us from God. So that in John 15, Jesus said to His disciples, and He says to us as His disciples, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. I call you friends because everything that I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. That transparency of friends. After Jesus ascended into heaven, um, 50 days later came the day of Pentecost and God sent the Spirit of God to live within us. So that Paul in Romans 8 says this, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. Not only are you a friend, but you're the son and daughter of God. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Listen, there is nothing that is more intimate than having the Spirit of God live inside you. That is as intimate a friendship, a relationship that you can have with God Almighty. Carrie Job, about a decade ago, wrote and sang a beautiful song that talks about God's desire for a friendship with us and the qualities that He has that help us in our friendship. Worship team is going to sing it for us.